Episode 3 of the Global Lithium Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Emily Hirsch, and I'm joining you from here in the sunny and beautiful Perth, Australia. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Mr. Joe Lowry. Good afternoon, Emily. It's well, great to be in Perth. It's great, it's great to be here in Australia. This is actually my first trip to Australia. Let's start off and ask these guys one question. Yeah, guys, we actually have had a little bit of difficulty with Australian slang. We were in a meeting today, and the guy said it's chalk and cheese, and we were... We were like, um... Bereft for not knowing what that meant. So what is, what is like, oh, it's chalk and cheese. What is chalk like and cheese? Do you want to be chalk? That's a measure of how, uh, how different two things are. A clear it's a difference. reference to the taste. Okay. Ah, so if someone, if you were like expecting cheese and got chalk, you'd be like, oh, this is not a great. Well, like comparing apples and oranges. Yeah, that's what, that's what he, he that's said, black, what he and said. Yeah, black and white. He had to really distill it for us to black and white. Okay, so we've got that out of the way. Well, it's it's like, I, w- I would have to say, Joe, that this studio is like chalk and cheese to where we were recording last time in Santiago. It's These are some nice digs. I did not see one wild dog in, in the parking lot when we came in. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a step up. Um, we're actually joined today by two very expert gentlemen, the managing director of Neo Metals, a Mr. Chris Reed. Hello, Chris. Uh, thank you very much, Emily. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. No, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here in, in Perth. Um, and e- having visited your, your lovely mine, which we're going to get to. Um, we're also here with uh, Mr. Michael Tamlin, the chief operating officer of Neo Metals and an old friend of Joe's. Don't call me old, please, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we were just discussing when we first met, and I guess we numbered it at about 20 years. So I've known Mike for a long time, and since he is a lithium pioneer, um, we're very glad to have him. And, of course, uh, since Chris comes from a multi-generational Australian miming f- mining family. It's uh, I think we've got a great cast this week. I think we do. Chris is a, is a proper miner. How uh, your family comes from a, a gold mining background? Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, a number of generations uh, in the mining industry, uh, developing mines, financing mines, working in mines. Um, so yeah, born and bred in Kagali. And when did you make the transition from from gold mining into into lithium mining? Or into hard rock, lithium yeah, so projects? Yeah, so, look, we first started looking seriously at lithium uh, in late 2008. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had some familiarity with, with an area that, that had some, some lithium in it, and we uh, managed to procure an option from the vendor and, and uh, acquired it in September 2009. So it's been a... Uh, a sort of eight or nine year journey to get this far. Well, congratulations. And uh, and Mike, Joe told me that you have a lot of experience uh, with the Asian markets. It would go back about 20 years, I think, roughly to the time that I met Joe. Uh, I started uh, with a company called Sons of Gualia that at that time owned the Greenbushes Mine, which is the largest 
lithium mine for uh, probably the first 25 years of its life. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there developed the spodumene concentrate market into China, particularly with respect to lithium uh, carbonate production, supplying two or three of the converters. That sounds exciting. And when did you join the join the team, or how did you two meet, Chris and Mike? Well, it's uh, you wouldn't want to jump into the uh, the lithium pond in WA a few years ago. It was pretty shallow; you could have broken your neck. Um, I figured, look, you know, we we had a mine. We were confident that we could develop it. Um, it was, you know, it's a virgin deposit, pretty good geometry and, and grade. We knew we could make it bigger, and the key part is is selling it. And uh, you know, you only have to go back to the genesis of chemical grade spodumene marketing, and it starts with Mike. So uh, I think I approached Mike in late thirteen, fourteen, to 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 come and work. That'd be about right. Us. Yeah. Good. Well, guys, I I think that we have a a rock star cast for our hard rock lithium podcast. Um, from from here in in Western Australia. So yeah, guys, welcome and uh, let's get to our show. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, do the bumps of time in your prime. Then you. So one of the big things, Joe, that I uh, I think is really interesting doing our third episode here in the sort of heart of hard rock lithium mining is the the whole concept of the lithium either supply chain or ecosystem. Um, where do you fall on that? Well, <coughs> I try to be simple. That's what you're known I've, for, I've, actually. I've yeah. succeeded throughout my life. So um, I tend to, to parse it not... I mean, I like the concept that Gang Fan started, and we talked about that in another podcast with the ecosystem. I think you're going to talk to Chris about that a little later. But I think what you're seeing now is a transition, and I think Chris is, was one of the most thoughtful people in Australia on that about why just make concentrate and sell it to a conversion market. Why, why not go downstream to value add it? And I think that is a key point that we want to probe, so I won't get into the, the nuances of supply chain versus ecosystem let's just kind of start it concentrate and see how far it goes with these guys <laughs> yeah so so uh chris and mike how would you define when people talk about lithium upstream and lithium downstream what are sort of hard uh hard ends to that spectrum i think we have to address the fact that the lithium market has changed a lot over the last uh, four to five years uh, going before that it was very much a uh, raw material producer and a converter and a user market. Mm -hmm. uh, it's now uh, changed a lot. Pricing of uh, concentrates and carbonate have changed a lot in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. If you go back uh, more than 10 years, it was very difficult to uh, fund the development of a mine mm -hmm. and make the uh, construction and operation of a conversion plant uh, work economically. Things have changed a lot and I think the uh, size of the market demand has also facilitated a big change in the way you can operate. But it's very clear that um, there is uh, more value potential for a producer 
in uh, in the production of compounds and we really look towards adding value to our concentrates and moving downstream into production of compounds. So you hear a lot from the um, car companies, right, that they need to move upstream. And I hear you guys saying you need to move downstream. So where do you see the meeting, if, if at all? I mean, is there still a big gap between upstream and downstream um, actors? Or, well, or are they Chris told to us a great story when we met him the other day, and I'd kind of like to get into that a little bit. Because as I recall, you were in Germany and... Uh, Basically, it was kind of like uh, when they first said Bruce Springsteen was the future rock and roll, somebody from maybe it was Daimler said to you, you know, go lithium, young man. Yeah, no, look, that was, uh, that's exactly true. Um, it started off and we were walking into a meeting and they were coming out of the meeting and, and said, um, you know, you've got, you've got vanadium, that's great, um, but go and find me some lithium. And so we pondered that for a while and, you know, worked out where they were coming from, uh, the lithium batteries. And uh, then I thought, well, that's, that's a pretty big um, wake-up moment and, and had a look and worked out spot germain was a, was a lithium mineral and uh, I had worked out in that area uh, after I left school. Um, we, had, we were exploring for gold nearby, so I used to drive over this worthless material and um, so I knew where to go and you, this really came to you this is an interesting story to me because in in the time frame lithium was probably at a low point because you were coming into global financial crisis it was one of the only times when lithium sales dropped markedly in a single year and then you had to conceptualize like this stuff you used to walk over that was valueless and then figure out how to bring in the right partners and pull some levers to get it going. I mean, that, that may be oversimplifying it, but, you know, you, you wound up with a great partner in Gangfen, and if you just want to kind of parse how you got your idea to where it is today. Yeah, well, I think the first, um, you know, like I said, we were, we were gold miners. Um, so, you know, we had a belief in where, where lithium was going. Um, we had no experience in the processing. Mm-hmm. Um, Western Mining had owned the project for uh, since the late 50s, and they, they, they nearly developed it with uh, Broken Hill South. They nearly developed it with Lithium Corporation of America. Um, they almost developed it after the nickel boom themselves um, and then had a look uh, in the late 90s before abandoning it because, you know, chemical-grade spodumene wasn't a business. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, we, we were looking at a diff- another project uh, with the Minres guys to looking to give us a hand, and we ran this past them for contract crushing, mm-hmm. and they had a look at all the pilot plant work that was done over decades and said, well, you know, we could, uh, we could come up with a deal here, uh, and we did that. Then the next part was, how do we sell this? You know, it's always a new challenge, right? <laughs> like you, you know, you think it's like it's like climbing stairs. I think when you're developing a mine, you know, you're yeah. like, I'm just going to get past this hurdle, and then you get past it, and you're like, oh dear. Well, it wasn't gold, so you just, you couldn't sell it on a terminal market. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew it would, we could make it into a pretty good size operation, and there was only you know a couple of guys that were big enough to do that. 
Um, the Tianji guys had a long-standing relationship with Greenbushes, and you know we first met the the Ganfeng guys uh, in two thousand and ten, and we've had multiple visits and having them out to site and as some would say, you know, we'd been to the altar a couple of times. Uh, and in 2015, we got married. Became the runaway bride yeah. in 2015. I think you don't want to underestimate the uh, tenacity that Chris has shown here too, because going back to... We don't like to underestimate tenacity on this podcast. <laughs> like to no, we never do. To salute <laughs> you for it. Uh, you know, after the GFC, there was a bit of a lithium boon that was also a bit of a fizzer. And there are a few people got their fingers burned. So to actually invest in something and see it through, through those days, and come out to what is an overnight success on the surface now, when everything's plain sailing, is uh, something that's uh, a real achievement. Yeah, it's a challenge. Well, if, if we look at lithium pioneers, and we're looking at one right now, I think we're probably looking, we're looking at, at two. We're looking at two, I think. Yeah. We might be look- I might be looking at three. <laughs> anyway, so... <clears throat> You were pretty much the guy who set up the whole Australia to China connection for lithium. But then your partner company in Gangfin has the man who was kind of the outbound guy. And how far back does your relationship go with Wang Shaoshan? Uh, it'll go back to similar time to when I met you. Uh, at that stage, he was working for the government trading company in Xinjiang and we met through the business that uh, I was doing with the Xinjiang Lithium Salt Factory. And there are uh, some some good times and bad times associated with that. But I've known uh, Mr Wang on and off uh, since the late 90s through different businesses that both of us have been associated with to the present day. So it was actually a good return to, uh, to come back to uh, Neo Metals and to... Uh, work with Chris to seal the deal with... Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the brilliant things that, that Chris has done in this whole thing is to get you and to get... He got the two pioneers from the China lithium market on his team and uh, wrote out the bad times because it's... Most of the people listening to this podcast couldn't spell lithium in 2014. And you were there 20 years ago and it's what I'd, I'd kind of like to do just today is to give people appreciation that there's only a few guys out there and two of them are in this room and a third guy here was enough of a visionary to ride it through. So guys, looking at looking at one of the reasons that Joe and I sort of settled on, on the, the term ecosystem rather than supply chain and, and, and going off of what you said that, you know, four or five, six years ago, the economics simply weren't there for a lot of the projects that today are overnight successes. Um, it's an industry that's a small market, um, still relatively, um, that's marked by rapid change, both in terms of the economic realities from an outside and the technology um, that's coming in from the inside. It's it's a bit of a fluid space, so to speak. And and Chris, I, I know that your that Neo Metals is you have the the mine, um, you have uh, a technology that you're developing to do a membrane uh, purification process to produce carbonate from brine, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you're looking to do a hydroxide plant here in Australia, um, and I believe I've missed. A couple of the, the so yeah, I want to hear just a little bit about 
you know, the what you're putting out there, where you see your, you know, the core strengths and, and how you see that developing, I guess, over the next three to five years? Yeah. Yeah, look, um, certainly in, in, in terms, going back earlier, in terms of writing it through, we had a very uh, supportive partner in Mineral Resources at, at that time. Um, a lot of the innovations um, that are starting to come to fruition now and, and have some significant value were um, the ideas were spawned in the very dark times in, in the middle of a price war and where could we compete so the genesis behind a, a lot of that stuff is out of necessity so you know we knew that we couldn't compete against the Brian boys in carbonate that there was potential that we could level the playing field uh, for lithium hydroxide best way to make a hydroxide is to electrolyze a chloride so we had to come up with a process there uh, it worked well for uh, for hard rock spodumene, it works even better if you start with the brine. So this is the Eli. That's that's the electrolysis. So that that was our first step um, to have a competitive advantage downstream to build a long term. I mean, like I said, you can't trade it. Uh, there's no terminal market. So the only long term strategy we could do was one to try to build an integrated business to get down to the cost curve. Some of the other technologies are either value add or cost savings measures um, and you know the fundamental uh, approach is to try to move from the higher cost upstream units and we accept that's undeniable to move into hydroxide and further down to the cost curve so mm-hmm. we, we believe we can move into the, the lower half confidently um, we've, we have some technologies that we I mean, we're not targeting to go into brines, uh-huh. uh, but we would look to commercialise those through royalties, uh, and then to recycle, mm-hmm. and and to to really urban mine to to take the ninety five percent urban of mining. I like we, we I do like, like that. urban mining. He's got it. It's a good. To, that's a good. Uh, yeah, to take the ninety five percent of batteries that that aren't being recycled, and to harvest back those materials without developing new mines. So one, it's uh, the greenhouse emissions and all that sort of stuff are much better. The economics are much better, I won't lie. Um, and so while it might appear, you know, we're developing an ecosystem, it's it's really that that's that's a byproduct of we've looked at the chain, we look where we can go. We're not into cells or battery packs or anything like that. The only person who might know would be the great and wonderful Wizard of Oz himself. So, Joe, I want to transition to what you've referred to in a couple of our meetings uh, this week as the big indigestion, which is the sort of the process of going from a spodumene concentrate into a lithium chemical? Well, I have a lot of followers on social media that really don't understand the industry too well. And if I have to use a kind of an oddball term to try to help with that, you know, I could have called it the lithium fart or something like that. (laughs) I I elected not to. I mean, people... It, it, it almost goes back to the off-taker versus the converter argument. Yeah, so the conventional wisdom would be that the, the off-taker would be the converter, but I would be conventionally incorrect. Uh, conventionally, you're correct, but things are changing. 
lithium converters were the traditional customer for lithium concentrate producers. There are different skill sets involved in mining and converting and cathode making and battery making and car making and there's only so much that any one company can cover and so there, there are some areas where you typically find a certain type of company but the traditional sequential uh, supply chain is starting to change a bit. But going into specifics, are we seeing off-takers that aren't converters? I think we have, and I'm not going to mention names because that would probably just cause a lot of hate mail. Um, I, I think a lot of the off-take agreements are aspirational, that people have enough cash to make a upfront payment. I mean, that's the beauty of what um, the gentlemen before us have done, they're dealing with the most real of real players and probably the most capable converter because Gangfin's shown a propensity to be able to take any quality or any type of lithium-bearing material and turn it into a lithium chemical. They are the kidney of the industry, maybe. Um, it's a lot of, there's a lot of digestive... Uh, well, I mean, I'm just trying to stay with your theme here. This is a very allegorical, uh, <laughs> allegorical podcast. But he, here's, here's the, 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 you know, going back to the point, though, and we've heard this in several of the meetings we've been in, and again, we won't talk about who said what directly, but um, when you're asked, does your off-taker have conversion capacity, we've heard the answer... We're not sure. We've heard a definite no. We've heard they're building it. And and I think there's going to be some indigestion as there's a lot more spodumene coming out of Australia. And it's actually getting paid for. Mm -hmm. But when it gets to China, it has a long... It's like it's the li lithium equivalent of purgatory. <laughs> Conversion history in China is replete with examples of people who have built and never operated or partially successfully operated conversion plants. What does partially successfully Never reached mean? capacity or maybe okay. never reached a suitable product quality. Some of those plants have been bulldozed and so you can't find them. Some of them are not rotting in the jungle, but the literal equivalent of it. Close enough, right? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And do you guys see then the sort of future of the market going to, uh, you know, essentially spodumene concentrate being traded to these converters or these converters acting as tollers or, or where do we go from people buying concentrate who don't know or don't have a capacity to convert it into a lithium chemical? I think we can only talk for ourselves because we have a contractual commitment to Ganfeng and from Ganfeng to supply concentrates for the life of mine. Uh, Neometals also has an, off, an option to offtake that same concentrate and we plan to build a hydroxide conversion plant ourselves. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. So guys, how many hydroxide plants are being planned for construction in Australia right now? Don't ask the American. <laughs> okay. Um, so the the gentlemen at TNG are, are looking at two trains, I think of 24, so that would be 48,000 tonnes of hydroxide. I think the gentlemen at Albemarle are looking for or have approvals with a view of a maximum cap of about 100,000 tonnes of hydroxide, first train of 20. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at a 10,000 tonne hydroxide. We're, we're not 
we don't have that scale. We're, we're trying to make a better return on capital, not not size doesn't drive us. Um, and the gentleman from uh, SQM and, and Kidman, I think, are planning a 40,000 tonne hydroxide. So, you know. Five. I'm seeing five. Yeah. Well, I yeah. The only the only thing I would uh, nuance that a little bit is when when I talk to the SQM guys, they say their plant's going to be dual purposed, and so it it may do twenty carbonate, it may oh, and twenty yeah. hydroxide. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the 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 beauty of going to a hydroxide solution is if you can't do it all as hydroxide, you can bleed CO2 and carbonate it. And there are not many examples in the world yet of production from uh, hard rock concentrates to capacities of 15,000 tonnes per year or more LCA. So these are, these are uh, bold... I'd say there were zero examples of yeah, that. I, did, I didn't want to be rude, Joe. <laughs> what's what's well, the average... Well, let me do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> what's the average uh, size of a conversion plant in China? Let me give you a slight historical perspective. Uh, the Shahong plant, uh, when I first uh, knew it as, as the first supply to a new plant, was 1,500 tonnes a year LCE. Uh, it was expanded to about 3,000 and then 5,000. And so plants in China uh, in the, the middle period in the, uh, the 2000s were probably somewhere of the order of 5,000 tonnes. It was a fairly bold step that Galaxy took to build 17,000 tonnes LCE capacity in 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, history has shown that it uh, had severe technical problems that constrained its capacity. So it was probably more of the order of a 12,000 tonne LCE plant for a long time. So um, that's still a big plant in China until this new generation that are being built now, but as yet uh, uncommissioned and not in production. So wh then this is a question about China. A lot of the uh, short and medium term demand growth for lithium is being driven by mobilization, or excuse me, electrification of mobility in China. Um, do you think that the Chinese government will or could put any um, incentives or would have a, a desire to shift that conversion capacity out of Australia back into China? A, you know, does, is, there a, is there a competition between the countries, Australia and China, for ha being the, the world's converters? Well, there's no conversion capacity uh, now in Australia, and they're, apart from a, a, a fatal attempt in the 90s, hasn't been. So it can't actually shift it back, so to speak, but there are certainly uh, commercial incentives to converters in China to uh, add value to the concentrates right through to vehicles because there is no refund of VAT until those uh, elaborately manufactured products are sold. Let me walk back on the uh, 15,000 ton number. I, I firmly believe that your partner will have a much bigger plant than that in process in the next in the coming year. Um, I, I think that is the wave of the future. My comment was really based on you know the past, and we you know everyone I know if they if they have twelve or eighteen thousand tons of capacity that's not utilized, they're 
individual trains of six or five or six thousand tons. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. no, I agree, Joe. I think Ganfeng is eminently capable of building a bigger plant because they have experience now. They've got a long history of operating plants. And the same goes for Tianchi, having bought the Shahong plant and expanded it. It, it now knows what a bigger capacity plant should look like and should do. Um, for us though, um, we would rather look at our return on investment and because it's our first conversion plant, bite off something that is uh, certainly digestible to continue that theme and we would well done. we would we would see that it's a uh, far lower risk for us in a financial and operational sense to build a smaller plant and get good at that and then build another one or expand it than to uh, go the whole hog we're we're always asked um i mean the the question of the day and all the expert calls I have is, you know, projecting demand to 2025. And that is kind of a fool's errand because nobody really knows. But just from the gut, I'd just like to get each of your perspective on both the growth in terms of, is it 3X? Is it 4X? What what do you think the, the, the range is? And this whole concept, I mean, you're, you're looking at hydroxide, everybody down here is looking at hydroxide because that's where hard rock's real advantage is vis-a-vis brine. But do you really believe that the high nickel world is going to have a 2x growth to the, the, the cathodes that would just use carbonate as the feedstock? I, I think there's a definite trend towards the, the high nickel um, cathodes. I think if you go the uh, the hydroxide route, it's only 50 bucks a tonne to turn it into carbonate. Whereas if you go the carbonate route, it's much, much, much more expensive to, to turn it into hydroxide. So uh, I think you, you let the chemistry tell you what you should produce first. Uh, we're not here to save the world either, so we've got to look to our business and our capabilities. I'm, I'm disappointed in <laughs> you. Yeah, right? Elon, Elon Musk is crying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you I'm have, not of you the have same not look. internalised <laughs> the vision, apparently. Yeah. No, we're, we're here to develop a profitable business, yeah. and we'll grow as we can. I think there's ample headroom given the, uh, the variety of growth projections, and whether it's two or three times. It's, I think, quite a challenge for the supply to keep pace with demand. And that's kind of the point I wanted to get to in that we're hearing now so many people say it's going to be oversupply. It was going to be oversupply in 17. It's going to be oversupply 18. Oh, dear. That's too wonderful to be true. So a big part of this sort of oversupply story um, and, and the, you know, the opening of the floodgates and turning on the tap is our, our, our good friends from episode two, Drama in the Atacama, uh, SQM, are back not only making sort of uh, lithium news headlines, but they're, they have a JV here with Kidman Resources to build a hydroxide plant. And then your uh, lithium best friend, Julio Ponce, and the... <laughs> And uh, you know, the, the, there's been a uh, uh, your other non-best friend, m- Mr. Mr. Betran, has been. Uh, there's a We're deal that's been raised, right? Yeah. So what's what's going on, Joe? Well, I mean, I think that 
I think, and in, in what we'll, I'd like to get our guest comments on what happened in the Aussie market after the uh, big announcement about SQM and Mr. Betran put out a number of SQM could be at 216,000 tons by 2025, but if you look at the contract language, it's a number of about 25% of that that they're actually committed to. And, you know, markets kind of said, oh, my God, they're going to do it, and it's going to be oversupply. And the floodgates. The floodgates. It, I, we could probably tie that into the digestive theme, but we won't. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because I, I think that was only positive for battery makers to hear that SQM is, is going to be able to expand in the Atacama. But I think because of the deal structure, and the finite term of the deal and the amount of capital they'd have to put in to, to, to go to the kind of levels Betrayan was talking about, there's no incentive for them to do that, especially since they're, they've moved right on the cost curve with the royalty. What it does create an incentive is for them to do Kachari just as fast as they can and to do the hydroxide in Australia as fast as they can because they're running a business. They're not running a charity either, and, you know, they want to... Mr. Betrayan is trying to save the world, Joe. <coughs> okay. Yeah, what do you guys what do you guys think both about the the sort of the JV between SQMA and, and Kidman and also what's happened in the the stock market since that deal has been reached between SQM and Corfeo? And then if you actually think, you know, if you're on the team Joe where you don't think it's going to impact the physical market or if you share the, you know, oh no, it's a lithium spigot that's been thrown. It's, it was unfortunate that uh, coinciding almost with SQM's announcement, there was some other commentary suggesting a lithium flood in uh, concentrates. And I think between the two of those uh, public statements, uh, it tended to knock a few people flat. And uh, I think uh, eventually some sanity will prevail as everyone thinks through the ramifications. As Joe was saying, looking at contractual commitments and also looking at the continued pressure on supply versus demand and uh, things will slowly uh, right themselves. What are, what are your thoughts, Chris? Look, I, I think the 216,000 tonnes is an aspirational number dreamed up by, by Corfo and maybe that's the amount that they need to produce to plug the falling dividends from Cadelco as it has to <laughs> reinvest in its copper business as they transition from oxide into sulphide ore bodies. Um, if you're on 63 now and someone's telling you to at least triple production out of a Brian, I would suggest that's a five to ten year proposition, which I believe, look, are they capable of operating it? Yes. Are they capable of investing and procuring the capital and deploying it? Yes. The fact that there's a put option in 2030 uh, or a call option held by Corfo for the return of it, I'm not sure I'd be... That would make me... Yeah, there's no incentive to uh, get crazy with capacity. So, you know, like the, the supply balance, I think this will continue to be... We're at the tail end of the decade of Hard Rocks responding. There's no doubt that brines would be the future next decade and that that has to, to ramp up. I think, you know, the Australians bringing on four or five mines in the next two years at the same time as the, the Chinese converters are adding record 
numbers of plants in 1819. Look, there'd be little disconnects. There'd be the odd burp. Um, well yeah. played, Mr. Reed. That's done. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but, you know, I, I sort of see that, you know, the next two years, I, I can't see there being that much oversupply. That it'll tip. But, you know, we're in unprecedented demand and undis- unprecedented supply response, right? It's not going to be in a straight line. If I was SQM, though, which I'm not, but if I was them with my key competency in processing brines, I'm not sure why I would not do Kalchari before the uh, the hard rock in Australia. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, if I was a hard rock producer, then like Neometals is doing, I'd want to be going downstream. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think Kachari gets done. Um, I think the only reason with, with KDR, that's the, the another diversification play, but mostly to protect the hydroxide part of their growth. Yeah. Because it, they're really disadvantaged now with that royalty and then doing it in Chile from carbonate. I mean, it just, it, it you know, it's an interesting, mm. it's an interesting unintended consequence of Mr. Batron's deal. And Eduardo, I'll just, I know you're listening. I will just say congratulations again for getting the deal done. But uh, we're all kind of wondering where that 216 number came from. The great Oz has spoken. I can't believe I have to be the one who, who switches us back from brines to hard rocks because, you know, um, but I wanted to sort of our last heavy topic um, before we move to to lighter themes um, this afternoon is I want to talk to especially um, Joe and Mike about pricing mechanisms. We've received actually a lot of feedback from some of our listeners um, and, and I myself um, am, am quite interested in, in drilling down on this so to speak, is so when, when we're talking about hard rocks, we, we mine um, a pegmatite district. You extract the spodumene bearing or lithium bearing spodumenes. You get a, a concentrate that's somewhere in the range of four to seven percent lithium. Um, and then that's either sold or converted. And then there's the, the lithium carbonate equivalent is what people use to price lithium. Um, is it a direct pass-through of contained lithium into the pricing, or how does the discount versus premium for lithium chemicals versus a spodumene concentrate work out? Things have changed a lot. In what way? Uh, the first uh, contract that I had in China was for $80 a ton spodumene concentrate <laughs> and an equivalent uh, carbonate price of 2000 so these were in the deep dark days when SQM was uh, uh, paying for its market entry by a, a severe discount on the carbonate price. Uh, and looking at the the makeup of the carbonate cost of production, it was about eight tons of that eighty dollars, so six hundred and forty dollars a ton, about a thousand dollars a ton of processing costs, plus a few other costs to make up the difference. And uh, the uh, the weighting of the processing cost as a proportion of the total cost was considerably higher than it is now. Mm-hmm. And so you've moved from about 1,000 to somewhere two to 3,000, depending on what people's numbers include or don't include, 
while the spodumene price has increased to eight to nine hundred dollars a ton. So you're looking at a considerable change in the balance and at the same time you're looking at a considerable change in the market price of the products. That's because you know, Joe. I mean, it's it's you, you go even a step down, and you're back to your favorite um, lithium sellable product, the DSO direct shipped ore, which is you know before you even get a spodumene concentrate. Do you see that sort of the premium, so to speak, for lithium chemicals getting wider, or do you see prices in the future tending more towards something that reflects the contained lithium, as you'd see with like a gold bearing concentrate? Well, Mike can correct me if I'm wrong, but. I would say until about 